I want to, uh, I want to read you a, uh, a story. It has nothing to do with the sermon. Is that okay? I just thought it was cool. Uh, I'm still a little loud, I think. Is that all right? You guys okay now? All right, that's good. Thank you. Um, an old gentleman lived alone in New Jersey. He wanted to plant his annual tomato garden, but it was way too difficult work as the ground was very hard. His son Vincent, used to help him, was in prison. The old man wrote a letter to his son and described his predicament. Dear Vincent, I'm feeling pretty sad because it looks like I won't be able to plant my tomato garden this year. I'm just getting too old and to be digging a garden plot. I know that you'd be happy to dig my plot for me like in the old days if you were here. Love, Papa. A few days later, he received a letter from his son. Dear Papa, don't dig up the garden. That's where the bodies are buried. Love, Vinny. At 4 a.m. the next morning, FBI agents and local police arrived and dug up the entire area and didn't find any bodies. They apologized and left. The same day, the old man received a letter from his son. Dear Papa, go ahead and plant the tomatoes. That's the best I could do under the circumstances. <laughs> Isn't that good? Well, under the circumstances, you got what you got, all right? I don't know how that fits in anything, but anyway. I, uh, I'm not going to have you walk on water tonight. I prayed about it, and uh, God's got me going in a different direction. Um, it may, this may be only for one person tonight. I don't know who that is, um, but that's where I am. And it's on something that I've already touched on earlier, but I just felt like we needed to go deeper into that section. So a different scripture and a different message, but on the same subject. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me, please, to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. Can't even read what, what Genesis it is. That's terrible, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry. Genesis 22. And we're going to read the first uh, 19. I'm going to read the first 19 verses. So it's a get a bit of reading. The thing about the Old Testament, there's nothing short. They're all stories. And it just takes a while to get through them. So uh, if you'll stand with me, please, out of reverence for the Word of God. Sometimes later, God tested Abraham. Let me stop right here. Let me go back, in fact. You know, when it says sometimes later, you need to find out what was later. And so the chapter before, you've got the birth of Isaac. Remember, Isaac, son of Abraham and Sarah. And uh, then you've got a treaty that took place between uh, uh, warring forces, uh, uh, and Abraham had to sign the treaty and so forth. And then it says, and sometimes later, and I'm thinking maybe 10 to 12 years later, Sometimes later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him his, his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. 
Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb of the, for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham uh, from heaven a second time and said, Because I, you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand in the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Be seated. You know, after I moved up here, I thought, we're online, aren't we? Is it a video? I'm sorry. I just came running up here and everybody at home watching this thing just... I'm closer to the camera. That's okay. That's okay. Thanks, I didn't tell you what I was going to do in advance. I, I love the story of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah. Wonderful, wonderful, just, a, just an incredible story. But you got to go back Instead of the, the, this, this chapter, you've got to go way back at the beginning. And way back at the beginning is the 12th chapter. God says to Abraham and Sarah in the 12th chapter, uh, you're going to have a baby. Now, the only problem with that is that Sarah was 65 and Abe was 75. Ladies, <laughs> do you catch on? But it goes back, and God tells them this in chapter 12. He's 75 and she's 65. He tells them again in chapter 13. He tells them again in chapter 15 about the stars in the sky and the, and, and the sand on the, in the uh, desert or on the beach or on the shore. And in the 17th chapter, he's Abraham's 99 years old. And Sarah is 85 years old. So 25 years when God originally said what he was going to do through them, it took 25 years, and Abraham, and you remember that time Sarah's laughing too, you remember? You know, 95 years old, 90 years old, come on. And so that's the story. Um, I mentioned Dr. Kenlaw, he's the one that wrote the devotional book that every one of you need to have back here. Um, Dr. Kenlaw was an Old Testament scholar, uh, but I love to hear him tell the stories about Abraham. And he tells this story, he says, when, when God went, came to Abraham and he told him he was going to have a baby, he said Abraham walked all the way down to the other end of town to Jake the Jew's furniture store. 
He said he walked to Jake the Jew's furniture store. Jake, I need a baby carriage. And Jake said, Abe, what in the world are you doing with the baby carriage? You don't have any babies. You don't have any children. You don't have any grandchildren. What do you want a baby carriage for? Abe said, are you going to sell me a baby carriage or not? He said, okay. So he sold him a baby carriage. Dr. Kenlaw says that he took the baby carriage and he didn't go back the back way home. He walks down the middle of Main Street pushing a baby carriage. The curtains part. The tongues start to wag. What in the world is going on here? He gets home. He doesn't put the baby carriage back in the, in the back bedroom. He puts the baby carriage in the foyer so that when you walk in the door, you almost trip over it. And he said if somebody comes to visit in the daytime, they walk in, they see the baby carriage, and they said, Abe, what in the world are you doing with the baby carriage here? He says, come here, I want to show you something. They walk out on the step. He said, you see the desert out there? You see the shore? You see all the sand? How many millions and billions of grains of sand? I just, you can't imagine. God told me. God told me that one day, I'm an old man, but God told me one day, my offspring, by the way, the offspring, the Messiah comes through, but my offspring is going to outnumber the grains of sand out there. If they come and visit at night, they trip over it. They said, hey, what in the world is a baby carriage doing here? He says, come here, I want to show you something. They walk out, it's dark, look up the star. There's stars everywhere. He said, look up there. You see all those stars? He said, I got a feeling there's just millions of stars we can't even see. But God promised me that one day, God promised it. One day, my descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. At 100 years old and 90 years old, God fulfilled that promise. Parental love is different. I don't think there's a Greek word for parental love or a Hebrew word that just matches it. There's all kind of words for different kinds of love, but, but parental love is different. You that have children, you understand this. I, I would give anything for my children. And I would especially give anything for my grandchildren. I like my grandchildren. I would do anything. If God were to say to me one day, Tom, you're, you're, for, for your granddaughter to live, you'll have to give your life. Folks, I wouldn't even pray about it. I'd just do it. That's different. That's the kind of love that Abraham, I think, had for his son. I mean, this is a miracle child. Just a miracle child. Besides his, his love. This, this chapter starts out with God tested Abraham. It's the only place in all of Genesis I can find where God tested somebody. Do you, do you think that God still tests us today? I think so. I believe so. If it's not God testing me, it's Satan testing me, and I think it's God testing me. He does it on a regular basis, I think. I don't know about you, but I think he does that. And when God tests somebody, the reason he does, it's in order to bless that person. You want a blessing? Wait for a test. It's going to come. Now, What we're talking about here is obedience. If Abraham obeyed, then God would bless, and therefore we would be blessed because we're here because of that. But if Abraham 
doesn't pass the test, I hate to think there. But God has called us. He does test us. He does that. And, and I have this thing. When somebody really has an incredible experience with Jesus, maybe this week, I usually remind people within 24 to 48 hours, this is my experience over all these years doing evangelism, within 24 to 48 hours, be ready for a test. And I don't know if it's a test of Satan or a test of God, but I do know that I've seen so many times that, that people will come and, and they'll get blessed and something will happen. And so I warn people, and I tell them, I said, get ready. You know, because not everybody it's going to happen to, but 24 to 48 hours, somewhere in there, after, you, after something happens in your life, you're going to come probably to a fork in the road. And it's important that you go the way that God wants you to go, and you'll be ready for it. I had a guy one time, uh, he was Vietnamese guy. He was on the boat lift, original ones that came over. And uh, he came down and God filled that man with the Holy Spirit. I mean, he was so excited about it. And I warned him, I said, hey, you be ready. You know, be ready. You're probably going to get a test. He came back the next night. He was just grinning like a Cheshire cat. I mean, he was just, just grinning. And I said, what's, what's up with you? He said, it happened, it happened. I said, what happened? He said, the test, the test. And I passed. I said, well, tell me about it. He was, a, he was a contractor, a builder, and he was driving down the road, and he had a load of two-by-fours in the back of his, because they were so long, he had to open up the window in the pickup truck, and, and they were just kind of sitting there. And he said, he, somebody ran a red light, and he had to slam his brakes on, and he said, the two-by-fours went whoo, right beside my ear, all the way out the windshield. And he said, normally I'd have cussed the blue streak, but I just said, praise God, praise God, I got the test. You probably will have a test sometime if you already haven't had one. Obedience. It, it, obedience is not a natural thing. Did you know that? Uh, we have a rebellious streak in us. We were born that way. If you have children, you understand that. Not one time when my boys were younger, not one time did either one of them ever come to me one morning before school and say, dearest father, oh thou who I love so much, I came today to praise you, to thank you for being my father, I will obey you anything you, they've never done that. And now they're getting it from their kids and I love it. But obedience is not natural. We do have a rebellious streak in us. Now, the only way that Abraham could be obedient, here's the second word. Obedience is the first. The second one is, and we talked about it the other night, Abraham had to surrender everything he had. You cannot be obedient to God without surrendering to him. My uh, good friend Mark Rutland says this. He says, the prayer that gains the full blessing of Pentecost is the prayer of full surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I believe Abraham had to surrender some things. Now, this is conjecture on my part. I understand that. But I want to just give you four things tonight. And I want you to try to understand them as they, as they apply to you. I think the first thing Abraham had to surrender, he had to surrender his intellect. Now, I don't mean by that you've got to be dumb and stupid to be a Christian, just the other way around. I think you ought to be smart. But what I mean by that is there, there are things in our lives that God tells us to do, at least in my life, that make no sense whatsoever to me. Anybody ever been there but me? And God says, I want you to do this, 
And I said, God, that's, that's stupid. I mean, why would I do that? It's just, it's crazy what you're asking me to do. And there are a lot of things that are that way. Scripture says, Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Isaiah 55, 8 says, my thoughts, God speaking, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your thoughts my thoughts. Sometimes they just don't make sense. I, uh, Give you a couple of illustrations. I uh, had a good friend, Dr. David, wasn't doctor, excuse me, Reverend David Acock. David was a South Georgia Methodist preacher. South Georgia Methodist and North Georgia Methodist are totally different, right? Uh, they're, they're just different. David was, a, David was a graduate, same place I graduated from. He loved Asbury College and supported it. But David never had a church anywhere near the size of your church or near the size of my church. He had a very small, he just always had two or three point circuits all his life. Never was paid much money. He and Miss Polly were just lovely people. They had a house in Indian Springs and, and I'd see him all the time. He asked me to come and preach a revival for him one time. He had four churches on a circuit, four. This, by this time, he's 80 years old, preaching at four churches. I remember he said, uh, one church he came to, he said, Tom, you don't need to give an altar call here. I said, I always give an altar call. He said, you don't need to here. There's only two little old ladies, and they're both saved and sanctified. You don't need to do it anymore. I said, okay. I don't know about where you went to school, but where I go to school, they, uh, they have fundraising things. They, they want to build this, they want to build that. And in fact, I got a call three weeks ago. I said, would you head up your classes fundraising? I said, if you can find somebody else, let me help them with it. I can't, I don't have the time to do it. But, uh, so anyway, uh, they were going to build the Dennis Kinlaw, the same quote, the same book, the Dennis Kinlaw Library, Dennis and Elsie Kinlaw Library. And it was going to take $15, $20 million. I can't remember, it was just a bunch of money. And uh, so they had, a, they had regional meetings. They had a meeting in Atlanta. And uh, all of us went, all the alumni, we went. We knew what it was for. Uh, and they, had, they had told us what it was for, and we'd been praying about it. And uh, David and Miss Polly, they'd been praying about it. Miss Polly told me this story after he died. She said, we prayed, and I was going to give a certain amount. He was going to give a certain amount, and we prayed about what we were going to do. And we got ready to that point in the, in the, in the meeting where we'd fill out our little pledge cards, and, and she said, uh, David showed me his, and she said, I almost had a heart attack. She said, I almost passed out. And I said, Miss Polly, what was it? She said, he put down not what we talked about, which was like $500. He put down $10,000. She said, Tom, we didn't have $1,000, much less $10,000. He said, she said, David, you can't do that. I said, that's what God told me. She said, it makes no sense whatsoever. I said, I understand that, but God told me to do it. So I've got to do it. Where's the money going to come from? I have no idea. And so he put $10,000 down. A couple of weeks later, uh, there was a Baptist church. There's only two. He's from Uvalda, Georgia. You know where Uvalda is? There's nothing there but a Chevrolet dealership with two people that run it. The salesman and the mechanic, and that was it. And everybody loved David in Uvalda. But the Baptist church lost their preacher. You know how Baptists are. It take them a year to find a preacher, you know, at least. 
And so they asked David. He wasn't doing anything at the time. They said, would you mind preaching for us for a while? He said, I'd love to. So he goes down there. He preaches every Sunday. They don't talk money or anything. He just preaches. He just wants to preach. Almost a year later, they found a preacher. The deacons, some of the head deacons came to his house later, said, David, you didn't ask us about money or anything. He said, no, I didn't want any money. I just want to preach. He said, well, we got a check for you. You know what it was for? <laughs> $10,000. See, it didn't make sense intellectually. And God tells us to do something, and we come back with God. It doesn't make sense, God. And he laughs at us and says, just leave it up to me. I think that I don't believe intellectually that Abraham understood what was going on. I really don't. I'm thinking he might be thinking, God, you told me, and you told me for 25 years I was going to have an heir, and that heir would, and now you want me to sacrifice that heir? How am I going to have all, how am I going to have all those children, all those people, sand and stars, and how am I going to do that without a child? I know you could raise him up from the dead, but why go to that much problem? God said, trust me. It may not make sense to you, but trust me. Has God ever told you to do something that didn't make any sense? Has God ever told you to go ask somebody for forgiveness when it didn't make sense? Has God ever told you to go to somebody, your enemy, and say, I love you, it doesn't make sense? I don't know about you, but I, I can think of so many things. When I went into evangelism, I'd been preaching for 23 years. I was a pastor. My last full-time appointment was First United Methodist Church in Monroe, Georgia, beautiful church. This reminds me of it a lot. A wonderful salary. Wonder, everything guaranteed. They gave me enough money to, to build a house. I built a house in Monroe. Just good. Really, our dream house. We'd never had our own house before. Built our house. I had a country club membership paid for by the church, believe it or not. I mean, I had, I had it made. And God started talking to me, and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And the reason I didn't want to know what he was talking about is because I knew what he was talking about, and he was calling me to leave that comfortable situation, wonderful situation, growing church. God said, I want you to leave it all and go into evangelism. And oh, by the way, you don't have anything guaranteed. No salary, no pension, no insurance, no anything. No housing. And I'm sure I said, God, it doesn't make sense. That was 25 years ago. <laughs> I haven't starved to death. It's been close, but I haven't starved to death. God's taking care of me every step of the way. But it didn't make sense. So if God's asking you to do something and it doesn't make sense, do it. Be obedient. Surrender. I think the other thing, another thing that Abraham had to surrender was his emotions. I'm an emotional person. I, I, was, gonna, I was trying to share with your pastor a story, uh, three pages, and he got busy, couldn't read it. But I said, I want you to read this sometimes. It's an emotional story about a missionary. I wish I had time to read it tonight to you. Um, first time I read it, I just, I just wept. And I read it again, and I wept again. I said, I've got to use this at church, but I don't know if I can do it. I told my pianist, I said, who is a wonderful reader, she was a teacher at UGA, I said, uh, I'll look to you if I can't get through this, and here it is. 
I gave her a copy said, you finish it. Well, I finished it, but I was still weeping. I'm an emotional person. I cried weddings that I performed. I'm just an And you don't want to be around me when the Bulldogs are playing or the Braves are playing, either one. My wife leaves the room. I'm an emotional person. And I got a feeling Abraham probably was an emotional person too. When your only son that God promised you 25 years, well, even more than that now because he's had 12 to that, promised you. And now God's asking to, for you to kill that son. I can imagine his emotions were just. I pray with a lot of people at the altar rail or wherever, and they say, well, I just don't feel anything. I said, so what? You cannot base things on your feeling. You can't do it. And I think he had to surrender that. You know, I, I, I love to speak to young people. I, a couple of years ago, I got invited to speak to the whole Three Rivers, Great Rivers Annual Conference in Illinois, all their youth. There was like 500 kids there. Asked me to speak to him, and and I and I told him I said, you know, I I, I don't, I, I can't do that. And, and the pastor said, I've heard you preach, Tom. You're real simple. They'll understand. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a compliment or not, but I did. And one of the I did then, and and I do this quite often. Our young people today, we think they have something new and different that's their problems. It's pretty much the same thing. And sex is always a big deal, and I deal with that. But, but I, I also deal with, with coming to Christ and, and what that means. And so I, I have a whiteboard behind me or a chalkboard or whatever, and I draw a picture. Now, I'm, I'm no artist at all, but I can draw this. And, and I draw a picture of a steam engine, you know, just smokestacks up here. And then I draw a coal car behind it and make the coal. And then I draw a little caboose, and I ask him, I said, now, I love, and, and, and of course, they've seen him at Stone Mountain or somewhere. You know, they know a little bit about it. And I said, there are two cars that are absolutely essential to run that train. What is it? It's the engine to pull it. It's the coal car to feed it. I remember as a boy waving at the cabooseman. I like to see them, but they don't have cabooses anymore. You don't have to have it. Don't base anything that you feel. It, it, it'll lie to you. Feelings are wishy-washy. People have come to me for counseling. I have a full-time counselor in my church now, so I send them all to her because I'm not a good counselor. But I can remember them coming to me and said, well, we're going to get a divorce. I said, oh, really? Why are you going to get a divorce? Well, the feeling's not there anymore. I said, really? Let me find the chapter in the book. And I'm sure it's in here somewhere when the feeling's not there and you just don't feel it. That's nothing to do with feeling. Feelings, love is a commitment not a feeling. I think he had to surrender that. I, uh, one of my good friends is a man by the name of Dr. Bob Tuttle, Robert Tuttle. He was a professor at Asbury Seminary, the, the Orlando campus. He knows that I love to fly fish. I'm a fly fisherman. I used, to, I used to guide. People used to pay me. Can you believe that? Pay me to go fishing with them, teach them how to fly fish. And, and, and so he knows that I do that. He told me, he said, Tom, I was riding down the road one day, and I thought about you. I said, what? He said, well, I was going over a bridge, and I saw a fly fisherman down there. You know, a fly fisherman has nine, ten-foot poles, so, that, you know, you can tell pretty much. And this guy had a wicker creel on, the old-fashioned kind of thing. And he said, I, as I looked at it, I saw that fly rod just, just bend double. He said, I knew he had something big. I pulled off the side of the road to watch. He fought that fish and fought him. He didn't have a net. 
he tried to he was just dragging him. Finally, he just drug him up on the shore, and it was a good-sized trout. He said, and he took that he took his knife and he gutted that fish right on the river. And you know, it's organically okay. Fish will eat it. You know, just put the you know. And he said he put that fish that was gutted had no insides. He put it in his wicker creel, and he said that creel started to shake. Just started to shake. He said, I knew he had nothing on the inside, but he was shaking. He said, I got so tickled, I looked up to heaven. He said, God, give me a faith that outlasts the wiggle. That's the kind of faith I want. When, when, when I don't feel like it, when the wiggle's not there, when there's not an emotional thing going on in church and beautiful solo or something, I want a faith that outlasts that stuff. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had. The third thing I think he had to surrender was his fear. And this is a biggie. This is a real biggie, friends. My counseling at the altar, more than anything else, I hear these words, I am so scared about this or that or that. I'm scared about my future. I'm scared about my health. I'm scared about my children. I'm scared about my grandchildren. And I see people, Christians in the church, living in fear. And God says, surrender that fear. Abraham had to surrender. I, I, I just don't know, but I think he probably was scared to death what he was getting ready to do. But instead of going into the fear, he went into obedience through surrender. I can honestly say when I went into evangelism, I started out in major fear with no salary, zero, nothing guaranteed. And I fought that and fought it and fought it. Finally, I just surrendered. I said, God, you got to take care of me because if you don't, nobody else is and I'm going to go bankrupt. I, uh, I was in... Ghana, West Africa, on a mission trip. We took a medical team with two medical doctors, uh, one dentist, uh, five nurses. So there was a medical team, there was a Christian education team that taught uh, Bible school, and then there were evangelists that would preach. We were in a little place called Wa, W-A, just like it sounds, Wa, Ghana, West Africa. You it's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from where we were. There's no electricity. There's no water, running water. There's no power. There's no anything, no cars, no anything. It's just one day, we went to a different direction every day for five days. And um, one day, uh, about 300 people showed up for our medical clinic with two doctors. We gave out a medicine after about an hour. It was just, it was, it was wild. I, I don't know how they found out about it, some kind of connection, but they did. They showed up. I didn't have any medical experience, and uh, so what a friend of mine, a former district superintendent and I, were, we, we were in charge of crowd control. And uh, we made some, some of the men mad because back then men go first, women go second. And we stuck some women up front, and we made them mad. So we had to solve that problem. But... My friend Jim came up to me with a little Ghanaian girl, probably about seven or eight years old. Her eyes were shut, and she was crying. And Jim said, I found this little girl. I guess she's lost her mom, but she won't open her eyes, and she keeps crying. 
what are we going to do? I said, let's go find John. John was the missionary from Alabama that was there, young guy, uh, sharp, sharp kid. And we said, John, we, we, we've got, we found this little girl, and she's crying, and we don't know where her mother is. And he said, you need to go find her mother. I said, John, there's 300 people out there. It's a mob. He said, she will be the one that's crying also, and she's the one that's running around looking for her baby. So we found the mama and brought him back. We're sitting there, and this little girl had, it's called juju. Uh, it's, it's a West African form of voodoo. Human hair braided around her neck, down her back, around her waist to keep the evil spirits away. And John said, first of all, we've got to get that off of her. Tom, I had, the, I had a pocket knife, and so I cut all this stuff out, and it was just a wad of human hair that had been rolled. We got rid of that. We anointed her with oil, and we started to pray. John started to pray. And as he prayed, and this little girl is still crying. Her eyes are still shut. But as he started praying, he prayed along, and all of a sudden he said, in the name of Jesus. And when he said that, the little girl, her eyes opened, and she started screaming and shouting and laughing, and her mama started laughing and screaming, and, and they just hugged each other, and she was, and we asked, we, we calmed her down and threw an interpreter. We said, what was wrong? What, what was wrong with you? What happened? And she said, I was so scared. I was so scared. What were you scared of? It was so dark, and I was so scared. I couldn't see anything. I was so scared until you said that name. What name? That, you know that name? Jesus. Yeah, that name. When you said that name, my eyes opened up. I saw the light, and I wasn't scared anymore. We can't live in fear, folks. It, it, fear will kill you physically, spiritually, emotionally. That needs to be, I don't know what you're scared of. I, I, I guarantee you there's some people here tonight who, who are living in fear of what's going to happen maybe. It's time to surrender that to the Lord. Lastly, Abraham had to surrender his will. Whew, boy, that's tough for me. I'm a self-will kind of guy. I, I know what I want to do. I know what I want my ministry to do. I know this and if God said, I want you to drive a truck next week, would I be willing to do that? I don't know. Did Abraham want to sacrifice his son? Absolutely not. He had to, he had to go by God. Not my will, but yours be done, kind of thing. That's tough. I... Uh, Close to the end here. You guys okay? I, uh, my early life growing up, I was in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and Explorers, and Scouts was my life. I was an Eagle Scout. My best friend who I went to Ghana with was an Eagle Scout, and uh, we loved to camp. We loved to be in the outdoors. I still do. Um, but one day, my, my uh, youngest son, who at the time was... I think a junior in high school, maybe sophomore, junior in high school. And he had a friend by the name of JT. And uh, he and JT came to me one day and said, uh, we want you to go, we want to we wanna go camping. I said, okay, that's fine. Uh, but we want you to go with us. We want JT's dad to go with us too. You know, when a teenage boy asks you to go camping with him, that's pretty cool stuff, you know. That's good stuff. And we said, great, we'll do it. When do you want to go? Next month. 
Well, it was December. And so that made it January. I said, where do you want to go? He said, well, I don't know. You pick it out. I said, I've, oh, I've got a map. I've always wanted to go to someplace on the Blue Ridge Parkway up in North Carolina in January. But it was okay because Christmas hadn't come yet and we requested new sleeping bags. So we loaded up our things and loaded up our bags and loaded, and you, know, it, you know, the best part about doing that kind of thing is the week before when you get to go buy new stuff, you know, get stuff and get the menu and get the food. So JT's dad came and Big Jim came and picked us up in his Suburban. He said, have you looked at the weather forecast? I said, I sure have. He said, it doesn't look good, does it? I said, no, it doesn't. He said, it's going to be really, really cold. I said, that's what I understand. So we took off and about halfway up there started sleeting. And I knew we were in for it. But we got there. We got out. Jim said, I don't think we ought to go very far. I said, well, the place I see on the map, there's a, there's a campground right there along this beautiful little creek. And it goes up in there, waterfalls and all. And we'll just go to that first campground. We're not going to have to fight for a camp. <laughs> Nobody else will be here. And so we got out. We hiked up there. And folks, I've never seen it. I mean, it was cold. Pulled out my Coleman stove and... Uh, the fuel line was frozen. I thought, hmm. Well, I thought the best place to be would be in our new sleeping bags. So we couldn't cook anything, so we just ate some snack bars and decided to go to bed. It was probably about 7 o'clock, 6 or 7 o'clock. And we, we got in the tent, and I had, uh, I don't know if you understand sleeping bags, but good sleeping bags are rated temperature-wise. You can have a 40-degree bag or a 30-degree bag or a 20-degree bag or a zero-degree bag, and it's called the comfortability range. You're supposed to be comfortable, which is a lie, but you're supposed to be comfortable at that temperature, okay? Ours, we had zero-degree bags. I said, we're going to get in the bag. We had, we had a thermometer in the tent and a thermometer outside the tent. I'd like to tell you we slept very comfortably that night, but we didn't, but we were Okay. But I looked at the thermometer inside the bag, uh, inside the tent, and it said 12 degrees. And the one on the outside said zero. Well, we tried to get a fire going the best we could to get warm, and then we said, let's go walk, go see the first waterfall, and let's go home. So we did. Nobody slept that night. So we got in the suburban. The boys were sound asleep in the back. Jim was driving, so he couldn't sleep, and I was sitting over there just thinking to myself, and I came... This is what I came to. This is kind of crazy, but this is what I came to. What did I do last night? And I started thinking about that sleeping bag. I wonder where that sleeping bag was made. China, Sri Lanka, Indonesia. That's where everything's made. And, and, and I had this vision. <laughs> it's kind of stupid, but I had this vision. And the vision was... There's a little Chinese lady sitting at her sewing machine. And her job was to sew the label on the bag. And she had boxes, 40, 30, 20, 10, 0, minus 10, you know, just, and, she's, and she had these, and she couldn't read English, but she knew what the bags were. And the janitor came in that night, the night before, and with his broom, he knocked the, bowl, the boxes on the floor, and they were all mixed up, and she couldn't read, what if? What if we had a 40-degree bag or a 60-degree bag instead of a zero-degree bag? And I came to the conclusion 
I potentially sacrificed the life of my, of my wife's baby because I trusted a little Chinese lady that couldn't read English. And I came to this conclusion. Why can't I trust God? who knows everything about me, who knows every problem I've got, who knows every situation I'm in, who knows every temptation I have, why can't I trust him that much? What about you? Now, one more thing, and I, and I am closing. Um, I don't know where you are in your Christian life. I don't know if you've ever been at places where I've been like, I'm ready to give up this whole thing. I've been in places where I was ready to give up my faith. Where it was so hard and so crazy, I just didn't, I was all, I got to the place I was given, I give up the ministry, give up pastoral ministry. I went to the place of interviewing for jobs. I was gonna just give up. But God, through surrender, through my surrender finally, and it took me a while to get to a place where I said, God, I want to trust you. I want to surrender the situation I'm in right now in the church where I just need to surrender the church to you. I need to surrender everything to you. My hero is John Wesley. John Wesley had a hard life. He was kicked out of the churches he tried to preach at. One of them, they locked the doors to one church where his father had preached and he had to go out and stand on his father's tombstone to preach. And I ran across, Wesley was a wonderful journaler. He was also kind of absent-minded, I think. Uh, he couldn't remember. And so he kept a journal, but sometimes he didn't keep it up daily. So I want to read you just the page that I, I copied. Sunday morning, May the 5th, preached at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. This is my spiritual father. Sunday p.m., May the 5th, preached at St. Jude's, deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m., May the 12th, preached at St. Jude's, can't go back there either. Sunday p.m., May the 12th, preached at St. George's, kicked out. Sunday a.m., May the 19th, <laughs> I love this one. Preached at St. Somebody Else's. I, Asbury Seminary has a wonderful Wesley Library. I called him up. I said, check this out. Did I copy this wrong? They looked it up. They said, that's what it says. And the only thing we could come up with is that he forgot where he preached. But he knew it was St. Somebody. So he said, Saint, preached at St. Somebody Else. Deacon called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m., May the 19th, preached on the street. Kicked off the street. Listen to this one. Sunday a.m., May the 26th, preached in a meadow, chased out of a meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday a.m., June the 2nd, preached out on the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m., June the 2nd, afternoon service, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came to hear me preach. 
Wesley had every right to give up. People threw rocks at him, tomatoes at him, kicked him. Don't you dare give up. Surrender and keep surrendering. I don't care what your problem is, your situation is, just keep surrendering. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we, uh, we find ourselves just a, a group here tonight. I pray that we might be honest with you tonight and with ourselves. I pray, Lord, that uh, no matter what kind of situation we're in, whether we like it or don't like it, that we would let this night be a night of surrender. Maybe you need just to surrender your life to him. Maybe you're not totally surrendered to him and you need to surrender your life. Maybe there's a situation, a problem. Maybe there's somebody you're having a problem with, you need to surrender that. Maybe there's a problem between a husband and a wife, you need to surrender that. Maybe there's a problem between children or grandchildren and their parents or grandparents, maybe you need to surrender that. Maybe you need to go and ask somebody to forgive them, you need to surrender that. Maybe there's something at your job or with your neighbor. You need to surrender and do what God says to you. Are you willing to be obedient? The only way you're going to be obedient is to surrender. Are you willing? Lord, I pray that uh, we would say yes to that tonight. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, or maybe you're not even a Christian, but if you've been a Christian for a long time, you know, we, we need to continually surrender. What you surrendered yesterday won't go today. We need to surrender on a daily basis, maybe on an hourly basis. We want to be obedient, but we can't do it unless everything is surrendered. That's the reason we sing that song, I surrender all. You know, folks, 99% won't do it. Well, I'm going to surrender everything but this. It's all. Lord, would you give us the courage to say that or to come forward or however how you want us to do it? Not worried about what anybody else thinks or anybody else says. This is too important to deal, not deal with this. There's been tons of praying done for this night. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would be an answer to that prayer. We thank you for what you've done in our lives and what you're going to continue to do in our lives, even tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you as we uh, sing that same song, uh, I Surrender All. Um, there are five verses. We're going to sing all five verses, okay? And um, it'll give you plenty of time. Again, people say, do I have to come forward? No, you don't have to, but, you know, Peter could have been in the boat and said, I'm go I can walk on water, but I'm not going to try it. I'm just going to tell you I can do it. No, he got out of the boat. And there's something about moving forward, getting to the altar, stand or kneel or whatever you need to do, is a step of faith. That's what Peter had, is a step of faith. I'm going to invite you to come. Would you stand, please, as we sing? <laughs>